All right, guys, welcome back to AP Human Geography in 20 Minutes. I'm your host, Mr. Linder. It's Wednesday, March 13th, and we are going to be talking about agriculture today. So let's get started. Uh, going through the study guide, um, which will be posted up on Google Classroom as always. Uh, draw and describe von Thunen's model. Remember, the basic point with von Thunen's model is you've got a market uh, at the center, and you've got farmers who are trying to balance the costs of transportation and land uh, based on what they are producing. So things like vegetable and fruit farming, uh, along with uh, dairy products, that's going to be closest to the city center. Part of it is because the uh, land required is much uh, smaller, so you don't have to pay. You don't have to have a whole lot of land, which means you don't have to pay a whole lot for the land. Um, but to move those products is very, very expensive, especially as they are uh, perishable. They go bad very quickly. So you want to be as close to the city center, um, the market center, as you can. Uh, moving out from there, um, in the basic four ring uh, model, you've got forest and timber lots. And remember, uh, this comes from the fact that uh, in 1826, when von Thunen uh, produced this model, um, you know, most uh, construction, most homes, most buildings were built out of, uh, of timber, out of wood. And you were also burning that wood to keep yourself warm, to cook, all that stuff. So you needed um, a lot of wood close by. Uh, then we've got um, crop fields. So that's our uh, crop rotation, our three crop fields. Uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, might want to mix in some cotton there in some cases as well. And then further out, we've got our pasture land. So um, we're, again, this is 1826. We don't have a feedlot operation. We're not livestock fattening. We're livestock ranching. So we need a lot of space for our cows and sheep and goats and pigs and all that stuff. Um, and so we're going to be further out from the city when we do those pasture lands. Um, survey patterns. Uh, if you are listening to this today, um, some of you guys have not gotten here yet. Survey patterns is just how we divide up land. Um, so in the United States, there's three basic ways that uh, people surveyed land, people divided up land, especially in the uh, on the East Coast uh, in New England and places like that when we where European settlers uh, initially came. It was something called meets and bounds. Um, meets spelled M-E-T-E-S. And the idea with that is basically just like, all right, I look out over a given property. There's a huge boulder. There's a, a hill. There's a creek, and there's a forest. And that's like how I define my land. My land is the boulder to the to the hill to the creek to the tree, and that is how I how my land is set up. Which is why we get a lot of like irregularly shaped farms and land patterns in places like New England. Now that was okay when. You only had a few thousand, a few million people that were uh, living in the country. But as the country grew, you needed different ways to survey and divide up the land. Um, so in the Midwest, uh, with the land ordinance of, I believe, 1789, um, going from Ohio all the way out to like Minnesota, Wisconsin, places like that, um, you got township and range. So each township was divided up into squares. And I believe it was six by six mile squares. Uh, so you're looking at 36 square miles and each square mile within that six by six township um, had different purposes. And each one of those um, square miles could be divided up even even further. So number one, you could buy like multiple square miles within that township. Um, but you also had like, all right, within, um, you know, this square of this row, of you know, 
of the township and range. This is where we're going to have the post office. This is where we're going to have the city hall. This is where the school is going to be built. Um, this is whatever. And so you could divide it up a lot, uh, a lot better because it was so much more geometric um, rather than the meets and bounds system. Uh, and the last one is called French Long Lot. And you can find survey patterns like this along the St. Lawrence River in Canada and Quebec. Um, you can find it along the Mississippi Delta region in Louisiana where you had French settlers. And it is a long lot. It is a long, skinny lot. So instead of having kind of a wide, square-shaped lot, um, we have uh, a very, very long, skinny lot, kind of like row houses in Washington, D.C. or something like that. And the idea is that you're trying to give as many people as possible access to the river, access to the water source. Um, so rather than have one farm that takes up all the land on the, on the water, um, you basically shift that farm so that it is really, really long um, and has a little bit of access to the water, but that means that all the other people that are settling there um, can have it as well. Uh, where did the domestication of cattle, sheep, and goats first occur? Um, first of all, we are talking about um, Old World and New World here. When we say Old World, we're talking about Africa, Europe, and Asia. And when we're talking about New World, we're talking about North and South America. So almost all large domesticated animals came from the Old World. In this case, cattle, sheep, and goats, specifically from uh, North Africa, the Middle East, Southwest Asia, places like that. There were almost no large um, animals domesticated in North and South America other than the llama, the alpaca, and the turkey. Um, identify and describe the first agricultural revolution. That was the first time that human beings domesticated plants and animals. We started saving our best seed. We started breeding um, large, healthy animals together. Um, and we were able to create an agricultural surplus. And by creating an agricultural surplus, it ended our time of being hunter-gatherers. We could settle down. We could form societies. We could have government. We could have arts and literature and music, and we could have social levels uh, within our society. So it's really the first time that civilization happened when we were able to domesticate um, plants and animals. Uh, identify and describe the second agricultural revolution. That occurred alongside the Industrial Revolution, and it deals with the mechanization of agriculture. It deals with uh, increased understanding about crop and livestock breeding, as well as crop rotation. But most importantly, especially in England, it deals with the eradication of the commons and the creation of private property. Um, it used to be that people uh, were able to just kind of farm wherever they wanted. Uh, most people didn't own land because most people couldn't afford to do so. Uh, but with the Enclosure Acts in England that allowed the commons to be fenced in and owned by landowners, it allowed them to develop large-scale farms, uh, which helped increase the food supply, but also, again, further stratified society between uh, you know, the haves and the have-nots, the landowners and the non-landowners. And what that did is it put a lot of those poor farmers out of work, and they found work in the cities, in the industrial centers, in Manchester and London, and places like that. Um, identify and describe the third agricultural revolution. So first of all, the third agricultural revolution is also called the Green Revolution. It's also the first one that um, originated in the New World in North and South America, specifically in laboratories in North and South America uh, around the 1970s. Um, this is where you get the invention of fertilizers and uh, herbicides, pesticides, genetically modified organisms, heavily mechanized agriculture. Um, so giant combines and uh, these giant machines that are, you know, $500,000, but can, uh, I think in the uh, documentary Food Inc., that as of 2007, when that documentary is produced, or 2008, the average American farmer could feed 126 people 
uh, just by him or herself. So that is pretty amazing that we've gotten there um, from that point. Seven, identify commercial farming, subsistence farming, slash and burn farming, shifting cultivation, double cropping, truck, far truck farming, Mediterranean agriculture. All right, so let's divide these up a little bit. First of all, let's look at commercial farming. That's a large-scale farming that tends to happen in MDCs. Remember, that's tied into this thing called agribusiness, the um, kind of the blending or the molding of, or the, the marriage of agriculture and large-scale industry. Um, with that, uh, in MDCs, you also have truck farming, which is specifically re related to fruit and vegetable farming, uh, literally getting those products onto the back of a truck and getting them to the market before they spoil. And we're able to do that very, very quickly uh, because we have that access to transportation. Mediterranean agriculture is another form of agriculture in MDCs. Obviously, it originated around the Mediterranean Sea area, specifically talking about foods in Italy and Greece that are high in whole grains and um, oils like olive oil, uh, grapes, wine, um, almonds, that sort of thing. Um, it's also popularized in areas like California. Um, Switch that with uh, some of the other things that are on uh, number seven here in the study guide. Subsistence farming, slash and burn, shifting cultivation, double cropping. All those are referencing LDCs. And for our FRQ's sake, we should pay uh, a lot of attention to the idea of subsistence farming and slash and burn. So remember, with subsistence farming, I'm farming to feed myself or to feed my family. It's low-tech. It's not producing a lot of surplus. It's usually hand tools and that sort of thing. A form of subsistence farming is slash and burn agriculture uh, and shifting cultivation. The idea is that I go to a plot of land, I clear it of all vegetation, I slash the vegetation, I then burn uh, the rest off to create a, um, a swidden, which is what I'm going to be then farming on. I farm on that swidden, and once I have exhausted that soil, I then shift to another plot of land. And I do the same thing. I slash it, I burn it, I create the swidden, I plant, I shift again. Now that used to be sustainable because we only had a few hundred million people that lived on the earth. But now, especially in LDC countries that are the ones that are just booming with their population, number one, we need more food than slash and burn agriculture can provide. Um, and number two, we are not, we don't have enough land. So we're, we're having to go back to bad land um, which means that that land does not have time to regrow that vegetation. So it's adding to things like global warming, especially in places like Brazil and Central Africa, where uh, we're cutting down the rainforest to farm on um, on these swiddens that really aren't that good. They're only able to be farmed for a couple of years because most of the nutrients in the soil and the rainforest go to the the trees and all the other vegetation that's in the rainforest, leaving the soil pretty depleted. Um, so it's really not even good farmland to begin with. But when you've got these giant growing populations, you need to do anything you can to feed them. That's where things like double cropping come in. With double cropping, you are getting two yields out of the same field. So we talked about that with wet rice cultivation, that especially in Southeast Asia, I farm on a terraced hillside. And then once, once the grass, or sorry, once the rice reaches a certain point, I can then bundle that up and remove it to a flooded field where it finishes its growth and then can be harvested. And while it's finishing its growth in that flooded field, I can then replant uh, another um, rice plant on that terrace field. So I'm getting double the yield out of the same field. 
Um, how do livestock ranching and livestock fattening differ? Uh, sorry, I read that backwards. How do livestock fattening and livestock ranching differ? First of all, livestock fattening, I'm trying to make as much money as I can as quickly as possible. I'm really not concerned about environmental issues. I'm definitely not concerned about the cow. And I'm honestly not a whole lot concerned with the consumer because my goal is to make as much money as I can as quickly as I can. Um, cows are fed corn. That corn is full of sugar and fat, and so it fattens the cows up quicker. Also, the cows are not moving, so they're building up fat rather than lean meat, lean muscle. Um, because they're eating corn, which they're not uh, evolutionarily designed to do, uh, they develop E. coli and salmonella, which means that the meat has to be treated oftentimes with an ammonia-based solution. Um, but it is so much cheaper because it's quicker to fatten them up because they're not moving and they're being fed corn and corn is subsidized by the U.S. government. So it is dirt cheap uh, to feed cattle corn. With livestock ranching, I need a lot more space. They are um, out doing what cows have always done for thousands and thousands of years. They're walking around, they're eating grass, their manure is going right into the grass, which feeds the food that they are then uh, eating again. Um, but again, you need a lot of space, you need more time. Um, it costs a lot more money to do that. Uh, and again, corn is subsidized, so it is cheaper um, with livestock fattening, which is why when you go to the grocery store, you know, Whole Foods or Trader Joseph's or whatever, wherever you're shopping, uh, that grass-fed beef is going to be more expensive. Identify plantation crops and suitcase farms. Um, remember, with plantation crops, those are being grown in LDCs, but they are going to feed people in MDCs. Um, Plantation crops are often uh, things like coffee and tobacco and sugar and chocolate and things like that, or cocoa and things like that. Um, so they're grown in LDCs. They're sold in MDCs. Um, oftentimes, they're called suitcase farms because they bring a population from the closest urban area in for about a three- or four-month period. Those people live on the farm. Uh, they work the plantation farm, and then they pack up their suitcase, and they go back once everything's been harvested. Um, this is kind of a continuation of uh, going back to uh, like plantations and slavery. Um, obviously, that does not happen anymore today. But uh, again, a lot of these companies, a lot of these farms are owned by MDC companies. They outsource the labor and the production to LDC areas, and the food, especially things like coffee and bananas, are sold in MDCs. Um, discuss the debates surrounding GMOs. Uh, the biggest thing is uh, the scientific community is kind of divided on whether genetically modified organisms uh, are harmful to human beings or not. Um, we have uh, kind of notional ideas of what different fruits and foods should look like. So we can engineer them to look how we want. We can make the apples bigger and redder and shinier. Um, in Food Inc., we talked about how uh, we developed a taste for white meat in chicken. So we changed how a chicken is grown so that uh, the breasts where we have the most white meat uh, is grown fatter, quicker. Um, so it's a fundamental change to animals. It's a fundamental change to our food. Um, so that is kind of a, a worrisome issue. And again, we don't necessarily know uh, if GMOs um, affect human beings. Again, the scientific community is, is relatively split on that. Um, identified transhumans, that is just the seasonal migration of livestock. Um, again, with the idea of hunter-gatherers, when it's cold, uh, they're going to move to more southern latitudes where it's warm. Uh, and then when it heats up too much, they're going to go to more northern latitudes or they're going to go up mountains where it's cooler. But transhumans is just the seasonal migration of livestock. Uh, what causes desertification? 
what impact does this have on agriculture? That's usually overgrazing, um, overuse of water resources and things like that. Um, so areas around the Sahara Desert where, number one, it has been heating up due to global warming uh, and climate change uh, has increased drought and desertification. But also when you've got growing populations and you are raising livestock and you are using that livestock to, um, you know, you have to feed that livestock. And it's eating a lot of food in these semi-arid areas, and we're not allowing time for that regrowth of the ground cover. And very similar to dust, the Dust Bowl in the United States in the 1920s, um, that ground cover ends up getting um, basically blown away, and the desert continues to expand um, as that ground cover is gone and as um, the earth continues to warm. Uh, how has organic farming influenced current farming practices? Um, it's definitely been a big shift in the last 15 or 20 years to organic farming. People are starting to, f uh, follow where their food comes from. Um, a lot of people don't like the fact that it has antibiotics and hormones and, um, you know, it comes from chickens that can't walk and, uh, from cows that stand around in their own manure. So people like to know where their food comes from. Um, they like to buy local, uh, because that means that it's been transported over a short, uh, distance. Um, which means that you're not burning a whole lot of oil. So remember, when we when we buy food, a lot of what we're paying for is actually the transportation of the food, not the production of the food itself. Um, so a lot of family-owned farms that can't compete with these giant agribusinesses like Monsanto are uh, switching to uh, organic, and they are finding a large market in people that want to know where their food comes from. I described the Colombian exchange and its influence on agriculture. Uh, again, Colombian exchange is talking about the massive exchange of goods, crops, people, um, livestock, and diseases between the old world, North and South, or sorry, uh, Europe, Africa, and Asia, and the new world, North and South America. Um, things that went to the new world from the old world were coffee, bananas, which are largely now only grown in South America, um, horses, sheep, pig, goats. Uh, again, diseases like typhus and smallpox and malaria, whereas from North and South America to the old world went things like avocados and potatoes and tomatoes and corn and turkey and things like that. So it drastically changed agriculture in all these um, regions. Again, uh, coffee and bananas are now largely only produced in South America. Uh, the potato, which was native to North and South America, uh, played a huge role in the uh, famine in Ireland in the 1840s. Um, the tomato, which we associate with Southern Italian food, originated in North and South America. Where were the earliest agricultural hearths located? They were usually located in river valleys, uh, the Yellow River in China, the Ganges River in India, um, the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, uh, places like that. Um, what is meant by sustainable resources and sustainable farming? If you are a sustainable farm, basically what that means is that you are leaving uh, resources, or you are at least being able to um, recycle those resources and leave them for the next generation. Um, so anytime it's talking about sustainable, it means that we are able to use, we are able to regrow or reproduce, and that next generation is going to be able to use those same products and resources. And in some cases, we've gotten a lot more efficient at things, so that's why things are sustainable. But in other cases, we are understanding that we can't just have monoculture and just farm corn and just farm wheat and just farm soybeans on one plot of land over and over and over again. And eventually that's going to be um, bad for our diets, bad for the environment, bad for uh, our land. Um, and so you're starting to see a lot more um, 
you know, these small family organic farms that grow different types of crops and have different types of animals, mixed use livestock and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it's not just with farming, right? It's, it's the idea that like, if I'm a fisherman that I'm, you know, only catching a certain number of fish and I'm allowing a time period for fish to rebreed and regrow their population. Um, if I'm a, uh, if I'm a, I don't know what the word is, I guess lumberjack, um, I'm going to chop down trees, but then I'm going to plant new forests for regrowth. And I'm not going to harvest those forests for years until they are fully mature and, and ready to be harvested. Those are all examples of sustainable resource use. And lastly, what is monoculture and how does it relate to agribusiness? We brought these words up a couple of times. Um, mono, one, singular. You're growing one crop. Um, remember from our PBS documentary, the dude out in Kansas, um, he said his grandfather grew a bunch of different stuff, but he only grows corn. And corn is by far the biggest product grown in the United States. It's subsidized by the U.S. government. Anywhere from 25 to 50% of our products that we buy at the grocery store um, are made with corn. Most of our livestock eats corn. Um, and again, that's directly tied to companies like Monsanto and McDonald's and Subway and people like that. And so those are agribusinesses, giant industrial companies that obviously have a huge role and a huge say in um, the business of agriculture. All right. So that is um, all I've got for our tests on Friday for B days and Monday for A days. Again, make sure in terms of the FRQ that you are really looking at subsistence farming slash and burn and shifting cultivation. Uh, best of luck on the test and I'll see you guys next time.